Welcome to Off Key, a Membrane Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman-Wright. This season of Off Key will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how-to. Our hope is that this season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself, who are interested in building an understanding of how to earn money and achieve success as a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. This week, we're continuing down the path of royalty collections, looking at how the recording artist gets paid when their songs are played. Like the composition side, the master side is associated with the copyright of a song. However, in this case, the copyright relates not to the composition, but to the specific recording of that song. The performers on that recording, and often the label, hold specific rights to control and capitalize on this copyrighted work when it is used. Like the songwriter, the artist's royalties are determined by two types of income-generating rights, performance rights and reproduction rights. As we discussed in the last episode of Off Key, the performing right is the right to perform a song in public, for example as background music in a restaurant or bar, live in a concert, on the radio or on TV, while the reproduction right, or mechanical right, is the right to authorize the reproduction of their work in, for example, CDs, vinyls, and digital media. Historically, there have been some discrepancies between what rights songwriters and recording artists could make money from, particularly with regards to performance rights. Up until 1997, only songwriters and music publishers were able to receive royalties when their songs were publicly performed, for example as background music at restaurants or music played at clubs. This changed in 1997 when the Copyright Act of Canada was amended to recognize recording artists' essential contributions to the creation of recordings and their right to be equitably remunerated when those recordings were played. These recently incorporated rights are called neighboring rights, reflecting how recording artists' performing rights are the neighbor, or equivalent, to the performing rights of songwriters. I spoke with Matt Craig from MROC and Andrew Karras from Actor Racks to learn more about neighboring rights. So I guess if you think of it, um, sort of as you were saying, if you think of um, a song, like the actual written song, the composition, as you know, a piece of intellectual property that if you wrote that song, that is, you know, you own the rights to that. Um, but then you go and record the song, then the recording is sort of a separate entity in itself. And within that recording, there are also rights, neighboring rights, you could say, um, that are available to the people who worked on that recording. So um, and there's sort of two halves to it. There's the master owner side um, and then there's the performer side. So that's where we come in. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially, if you have contributed to a sound recording and it's received play under the tariffs that we um, work under, then you are entitled to receive a royalty for that. And you know, that can be, that can take sort of any form, you know, where there's two categories that we sort of work with. So we have um, feature performers and non-feature performers. Okay. Um, so a feature performer would be, say, you're either a solo artist or you're in a band and, you know, there's four band members and you're one of those members. Or um, you do like a feature on somebody else's song. So it's, you know, rapper featuring so-and-so and you're that person. So that, that would feed under the feature category. Okay. Um, and then the non-feature category would be for like session musicians or really, you know, anybody else who you might have had come into the studio and mm-hmm. performed on the song. So, you know, say you're 
the studio assistant and they were like, hey, can you come and do like gang vocals or clap on a song? Right. That still counts. Like you can still are entitled to receive a royalty from that because you contributed to the recording itself. So I think the best way to explain, you know, the neighboring right is is to just sort of, you know, that term neighboring right was was kind of a term given uh, to the right to equitable remuneration, which is the actual term in the Copyright Act. Mm-hmm. And essentially it was just given, uh, it was given that term because it's so similar to the rights that already exist for songwriters. It was really just an extension of the existing right. Um, and it's meant to sort of recognize the role that performers and sound recording owners play in the creation of a sound recording. So as I was saying before, there was no right or no royalty for performers. And this uh, right to equitable remuneration, which is sometimes called a neighboring right, um, was established to recognize that contribution that performers make. So really it's just songwriters had this right in place and they've been collecting on that for years and years. Mm -hmm. And then performers got together and said, hey, we also want to be paid because we feel our contribution to the recording is very important. Yeah. And then that right was extended to include performers and sound recording owners. Right. So it's called a neighboring right because it's the neighbor to the right that songwriters okay. have. That makes yeah. like it's like a parallel kind of. Yeah. And you know, I always say the song is kind of, you know, without the recording artist or the performers, the song is really just words and music on paper, yeah. which isn't to diminish the song, obviously, because the song is probably the most important aspect. It's mm-hmm. the origin of the idea. But you know, without the people actually playing the music, there would be no recording. So yeah. it's it's essential to the, you know, to the full creation of that totally. idea. But I think, you know, when we talk about how revenue works in the industry, it's those performers that are often ignored, mm-hmm. I think. Those are the ones that we're not thinking about. You're like, wait, who's making money from this? Who's making money from streaming? It's like, wait, what about the people that actually played the music? Right. Are they making money? I think that question is often overlooked. So how does an artist collect money from these rights? It's important to be aware that there are two shares that make up the master rights over a recording. The artist or performer's share and the sound recording owner's share, usually held by the label. If you are a fully independent artist and have full ownership over your recordings, then you are entitled to collect both the performer's share and the owner's share. Every country has their own collection structure, but in Canada, the key organizations for collecting royalties as a performer are MROC, Actorax, or artistie in Quebec. Other master rights owners like record labels or independent artists who own their masters should register with Connect Music Licensing or SOPROC. ReSound is another key organization in royalty collections, as it is Canada's non-profit music licensing company which issues licenses to music users, collects usage data on performance rights, and distributes royalties to member collectives who then distribute to their clients. I spoke with Martin Gagné, VP of Industry Relations and Outreach at ReSound, to learn more about the collection system in Canada. <laughs> well, I'll try to make it as, as, as simple as possible. Um, <laughs> and and, and I'll, I'll generalize it. But, but really, at the end of the day, what, no matter if it's Connect or, or Actra, MROC, Artisti, or ReSound, the goal here is that um, creators, in this case artists and labels, assign their rights, which, which really means sign up. Sign up somewhere. Because if you don't sign up, at the end of the day, you're not you're not receiving royalties that may be owed to you. And and when you don't sign up, and again, I mentioned collecting internationally. People may say, well, I didn't get any play here, but maybe, you know, they don't know where else it, the, the recordings may have played. So it's, it's free to sign up wherever you sign up. 
and uh, it's a it's a bit of a, a process when you go through it because you have to get information. But once it's done, it's done, and you just then keep feeding your repertoire as it grows. Um, but right. but it really is the key, the key here, the takeaway. If anything, is to sign up to the organization that's right for you. And it is you know music creators have options. What's right for one may not be right for another. So do research, make your decisions, and see what's right for you. So going back to your question about Connect. Connect, I mean, the short answer and how it's different is that they, they're right that they manage for reproduction. So not okay. public performance, uh, not, not to make this more complicated, but there's SOPROC in Quebec that anyone can sign up to, but they're located in, in the province of Quebec, and there's Connect. So those two organizations take care of reproduction on the artist and label side. Okay. On the artist mm -hmm. side, you have three, three member organizations. There's Actorax, Emrock, and Artisti. And again, Artisti okay. is based in Quebec, but you know anyone can sign up with them. They just happen to be based uh, in Quebec. So those three organizations, Actor, Amrock, and Artisti, uh, artists can sign up directly to them to get their uh, their neighboring rights and anything else. So if the, those are the three options for uh, artists, or they can sign up directly with Resound, and the two options are Connect and Soprop if you're a label or own your masters, basically what, what that means. It could be uh, an individual um, or sign up directly to Resound. So a lot of options, and a lot of people ask me, well, where are the advantages to one, and or disadvantages, and what what should I do? And you know, I wish I could say something, but I, I can't say which is right for a specific individual. It depends what he or she does or wants out of it. So it really is, and every organization has reps. I would say call each organization, learn what they do, how they do it, and what fits best with that person's needs. Mm -hmm. Um, so you wouldn't want to sign up to both. So say on the artist side, you wouldn't also want to sign up to both um, uh, Actra and Resound oh, yeah. and Emerald. It's one one for your on the artist side and one for the uh, label side, whether that's Connect, Soprof, or, or Resound. So it's one and one. Always sign up directly to Resound for both, but you don't sign up twice on on the one side. So the performer side, you don't sign up twice, whoever that may be with. Well, same thing with the, um, mm -hmm. the connect piece. The, goal, the whole goal here is to make it as simple as possible for right. um, for both groups. Okay. And like if you were signed to a label, would your label sign up with Resound or Connect on your behalf? And then would you just not have to do that as the artist? Um, I mean, it depends what kind of arrangement you have with the label and the size and all that. But typically, you'd still want to, or, or, or if a manager or agent does on your behalf, that happens as well. Um, and I, but it, what we're seeing now is that artists more and more are, whether they own masters or not, uh, for performance rights are getting more involved in this because they, I think everyone recognizes now that, um, you know, every revenue stream is important. And if you look at, you know, individual revenue streams, they may not, you know, provide a career for you on their own, but you add them up and they can add up to, 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 to good amounts. So I think more and more now the artists seem to be uh, more engaged, more informed and uh, are willing to put the time in to understand um, if anything is being missed. So oftentimes we go out and speak and they're like, oh, I'm signed up to the, on the artist side for public performance, but I have no idea about the master ownings. I own the masters, but I thought that was, you know, for labels or not, not necessarily for me, but money was left mm -hmm. on the table. So um, that's it's crucial that we, the things like this podcast or we go to events uh, to inform everyone of the rights that are out there and they're not missing everything. We, our goal here is to, you know, pay the right money to the right artist or master owner um, mm -hmm. as quickly as we can. So we really, you know, that that's kind of the the uh, the, the goal here of what we're doing. Mm -hmm.
To learn more about these organizations and how they collect royalties for artists and other master rights owners, I spoke with three collections organizations. Resound Music Licensing, Musicians Rights Organization Canada, or MROC, and the Recording Artist Collecting Society, or Actra Racks. To start, here's Matt Craig from MROC and Andrew Karras from Actra Racks, explaining what each organization does for recording artists. So MROC is a uh, not-for-profit organization. Um, we're based uh, out of here in Toronto. Um, and we were founded in 2009 um, by a guy named Dave Jandrish, who's still at the, at the top. Uh, he's a musician himself out of Winnipeg, I believe. Um, and before 2009, we were actually affiliated with the AFM, the Musicians Union. Um, and we distributed the royalties that we distribute now through the union as a, as a function of, of the AFM. Um, that's not the case anymore. As of 2009, we're independent, so you don't have to be a union member to sign up with us. Anybody is welcome to sign up. Um, and we distribute uh, the performer's share of neighboring rights royalties, um, right. both in Canada and around the world as well. Um, so Actorax is a not-for-profit performer collective, uh, and we represent all kinds of performers from musicians to, you know, you know, uh, backing performers, uh, mainly, you know, featured vocalists, session players, anyone who performs on a record. Uh, and we operate in Canada. We represent, you know, tens of thousands of artists in Canada and around the world, and we distribute royalties to those performers. Um, that's kind of the main mm-hmm. idea behind Actor X. My role is, you know, we have, we're a pretty small team. Uh, we all kind of share a lot of different responsibilities there, which is really cool. It's a very, like, project-oriented kind of uh, place to work. But me specifically, I do a lot of the outreach and sort of industry work, but then I also am helping artists on a day-to-day basis uh, cool. in our membership side. And then, you know, we all contribute to kind of building the data and, and making sure artists get paid right. in any way we can. So, right. yeah, there's a lot of different things we do on yeah. a daily basis. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. So who exactly should register with Actor Acts? I would say any performer who plays on a sound recording sh- uh, can and probably should okay. register with Actor X. Um, and that can, like I said, that can be anyone who kind of makes an audible contribution. Although that's not uh, exclusive because we do also pay conductors who right. technically can't be heard, but they do make a contribution to that recording. Um, so yeah, I, you know, it, I sometimes joke that people who, who do hand claps can collect royalties because, you know, yeah. you can, even if you do hand claps on a recording. Yeah. Um, so it, maybe if there's, if there's one takeaway for anyone listening, it's that if you become a professional cl- hand clap artist, you can collect a lot of money in Canada. If you get in that Rolodex of producers and they're flipping through and they're like, who does hand claps? Ah, this person. Um, but yeah, I guess the point that's just really to illustrate that any performance uh, can counts as a, a as a potential to be remunerated, okay. um, and I think that's important. A lot of times, artists who are featured performers, they will register with us and collect on their featured performances. But sometimes they forget to tell us about their non-featured performances, which is when they do session work or just jump on mm-hmm. someone else's record. Right. And I think that's really important because it can be, you know, yeah. a really important revenue stream. Um, so basically, the sort of the way the process works, um, you would register with MROC, which you can just do online. Um, Is it, does it cost anything? That's no, it doesn't. Yeah, okay. we're a nonprofit. Um, so we do take um, a 15% administrative fee on any royalties from Canada that we pay out, um, but there's no cost for you to sign up. Um, and once you're in there, um, we have like a sort of an online portal system that makes it pretty easy to do this. Um, 
you can see some people sign up and they actually see that, oh, you already had a bunch of stuff already registered under my name. That's great. Right. Um, if there's, if not, and you know, you recorded a new album, say you would just submit the information to us online. So, um, Really what we need to know is we need to know um, where the track was recorded. It's on a track by track basis and it's a performer by performer basis. So you, everyone signs up individually, mm-hmm. even if you're all in a band together and you're all getting paid for songs by that band, we still do it like on an individual basis. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you'd let us know on a track by track basis um, where it was recorded, um, who owns the recording, mm-hmm. um, which could either be you know yourself if you own your own masters or a record label usually more often. Right. Um, and then we just need a list of who performed on the track. So like I said, you'd break it down. We're a band with four members. We all played on every song. So you'd be the four feature performers, but we had a guy come in and play sax on one song. So he would be the non-feature performer. You know, there's this idea of splits, right? So songwriters, uh, have splits that are determined at the time of writing the song. So people get together and say, Hey, I'm going to get 33% because I wrote the hook or, you know, whatever the case is. On the performer side, we have a predetermined split. So it's feature performers collect 80% of the royalties and non-feature performers collect uh, 20% or a portion of 20%. The featured share includes, you know, the royalty artist or the named artist on the recording or uh, if there's a guest and they're named. So if it's like... Andrew featuring Talia, probably the other way around. Cause, <laughs> but uh, then we would both split that feature performer share. Uh, and like I said, it's 80-20 in Canada. In the U.S., it's a little bit different. Their structure is uh, 90-10. So feature performers collect 90% and non-feature performers collect 10%. And uh, of that 10%, vocalists actually split five and instrumentalists split the other five which is a weird oh. disproportion, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. You know, and it's different everywhere around the world. Every country uh, that we collect from has a different split. So in the UK, for example, it's typically 65-35, but the way they pay out that 35 is a little bit different than how we do it here. So you can kind of max out as a performer uh, in terms of what you collect. And then sometimes the money gets reallocated to the features, but here it's kind of a straight 80-20. So if there's uh, two performers who are considered non-featured, they would each collect 10%. Okay. Um, but yeah, it can get really nuanced. You know, we, we collect, at XRX, we collect from over 40 territories around the world. Wow. Um, and we've seen, you know, a lot of different variety in yeah. terms of how that split works. But the principle is always the same. The featured usually collects more than the non-featured performer. Both Actrax and MROC fall under the umbrella of the organization ReSound, which distributes royalties to member organizations to distribute to their clients. I spoke with Martin Gagné to learn about ReSound's role in royalty collections in Canada. As the industry relations head, I uh, just make sure that we have the right partnerships with the right people at the right time and make sure that we have a presence and people know about what ReSound does, uh, because I think there's value in that and uh, artists and labels um, need to know uh, what revenue sources are available to them. So, mm-hmm. so speaking of that, ReSound is really the, the Canadian not-for-profit um, music licensing company, uh, MLC as we call it, designated to administer performance projects on behalf of recording artists and labels. Mm-hmm. And maybe I should clarify what performance rights are for, for your audience. Effectively what that is, is when music is performed in public, the artists and labels behind that music are entitled to royalties. And this is further through the Copyright Act of Canada. So that, that effectively means that 
if a business or a broadcaster is using or broadcasting music, um, they are legally required to pay licenses to Resound. And, and those license fees that Resound collects are in turn paid out as royalties to artists and labels in Canada. And this is true right. from streaming services and XM and all that, but you know, uh, all, all typical broadcasters such as CBC and, and radio stations down to any individual business that's using music in Canada. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think really our work, generally speaking, spans over kind of four areas, four main areas or buckets. And those are advocacy, the licensing businesses, um, you know, distributing the royalties we collect, and our, our international partnerships. So, so the advocacy piece is really, you know, making sure that governments and policymakers understand the concerns of our rights holders, that they're heard. Uh, and that we we propose um, legislation that makes sense to the rights holders that we do represent, and that there's kind of fair and effective corporate policies in Canada. The licensing businesses part, I think, is is obvious. That's that's you know through in tandem those those monies that we collect, we then distribute, and the international piece is one that's grown quite a bit in the last number of years here at Resound, cool. um, where basically. It refers to like uh, bilateral agreements, as we call them. So that's where we collect and remit royalties to other jurisdictions. So say an artist mm-hmm. from the UK is playing in Canada, we will collect um, those royalties and pass it back to the UK. And the UK, for instance, would do the same for any Canadian artist that we play so, uh, in, in the UK. So there's a back and forth of royalties, so nothing is missed. So that has taken uh, a lot more space in our world and has generated millions of dollars annually. Um, between the major markets where Canadian music is played, and, and this also speaks to how strong of um, you know Canada, how, how strong Canada is in terms of artists and labels worldwide. Now it really is a, a big, big piece. A major part of collecting and distributing royalties is the process of collecting usage data. For these organizations, data collection is a primary part of their work. Martin from ReSound, Andrew from ActraRex, and Matt from MROC all discussed what the data collection process looks like. Yeah, how do you find out what, what's played where? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of data. I think as you've heard, I've heard in a previous podcast of yours that yeah. uh, data is the, the, the main kind of piece these days. I think some, some organizations in Canada that do what we do kind of even refer to themselves as, as data or technology companies because there's so much to be mm-hmm. to be analyzed and we want it to be accurate, we want it to be fair, and we want it to be quick. So we have a, you know, we do have algorithms um, that sort of allow for the automated matching, but a lot of that has to be reviewed or has to be right. matched uh, and, and processed manually as well. So there's... It's kind of both, but it's, yeah, it's a, it's a huge job. You know, sometimes, sometimes we joke and we're like, we're not actually in the music industry. We're in the data industry yeah. because most of our work is data related. But, you know, the, the kind of funny flip to that is, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you can have the best algorithms and the best data storage and whatever. But if one performer writes down or forgets the name of someone, mm-hmm. you know, or doesn't include or write someone's name wrong, that bad piece of information is going to flow through all of the data right. systems. So it's always important, you know, to get good data at the source from artists, I find. Yeah. As well as we can do that, uh, that will determine the most right. accurate payouts. So typically, 
it's we want information on the recording so you know we have a repertoire form which we send to artists and artists can update us anytime with that um, and we encourage it uh, and on that form we ask for kind of a few key pieces of information one is the featured performers on the recording and the other is the non-featured performers you can really only be one category per track um, so if you're a featured performer and you provide us with the non-P featured information, that's great. Right. Uh, you don't have to to get paid and vice versa with the non-featured performer. If you uh, provide the non-featured performer information, you'll get paid, but you don't have to provide the featured performer information. Mm-hmm. Um, we also collect information on where the recording was uh, recorded and also uh, who owns the recording. And that helps us to determine eligibility. And the only other real crucial piece of information is the release date uh, or the release year or the the recording year. Um, With that, we can usually issue payments. Mm -hmm. And then that data, as you as you kind of mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, comes. We like uh, we like to collect as much as we can from performers. But, you know, performers can only provide so much. Mm -hmm. So we're also accessing data from a lot of other sources. You know, we have a lot of partnerships with organizations around the world and we are constantly sharing data in a lot of different ways. And then also, you know, we do occasionally we'll do research to verify data. And a lot of times we'll take that data and ask a performer to confirm it or we'll verify it using other uh, data sets that we have. The first tariffs that we had in Canada were established in 1998. That's commercial radio and CBC radio. So we can still pay anyone who got usage during that period. But uh, the one kind of confusing thing about the 20 years is that's for the usage period. So if you recorded a track in 1972 mm-hmm. uh, and that got usage in 1999, you can still collect on that from you know, 1998 forward. Right. So in a way, it can sound like more than 20 years back, yeah. but the usage period goes back to 1998 for those two revenue streams. Okay. Um, cool. Like digital royalties came about a bit later, so we didn't start paying out satellite radio until later in the... I think. A, 2011 okay. <laughs> off the top of my head um but but yeah so the same would apply there we only right. go back to when that tariff right. was established um but yeah so there's there's always the possibility artists can come forward and say hey i totally forgot i played on every celine dion record in 1998 you know right. uh and it you know I, to be perfectly honest that that's happened before <laughs> not that specifically <laughs> but but you know Every now and then someone will be like, oh my gosh, I just found out about this and I haven't submitted all this data. And it's, you know, it's surprising. And we're, we're constantly trying to reach out to them and make sure that yeah. they're collecting their share. So let's just say it was played, let's say it was played on like CBC. Um, so CBC would log that information. Um, they would submit it to ReSound and then ReSound would submit that to us. We're using data that's compiled by ReSound. Okay. Um, and then, so the artists say they're registered with MROC, um, they would submit that track to us in their repertoire. So we have it in our database and then we would go through and cross-reference, um, that airplay data that ReSound provides us and we'll see, okay, in 2018, this song was played. So we match those things together in our system. Um, and what that does, it triggers a claim to ReSound and lets, lets them know, Hey, um, on this song, it was recorded here. It's owned by this person. Um, and there's five people on it. Three of them are registered with MROC. Um, and then, so there's quarterly claim periods with ReSound. Okay. So say, you know, we submit that. And then on the next claim round, which could be sort of depending on the timing, anywhere from like three to six months away, um, they would review it and they would say, okay, the track earned this much money. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this many people on it. And 
So Resound would say, okay, there's this many performers, mm -hmm. there's three feature performers, they're represented by MROC, so they would divide that money, they would send it back to us, and then MROC would pay the performer. Um, mm -hmm. So when you sign up with us, you you know you let us know your address. You can also sign up for direct deposit. Um, so we can either mail you a check or we can send you a payment by direct deposit. Um, so like I said, there's quarterly um, claim and like distribution periods we call them. Mm -hmm. um, so you can you could see a payment any of you know one of four times a year. Um, generally though, because we only do get that new data from Resound with like the previous year's airplay, we only get that once a year. Um, so if you're all cut up with your royalties, you're basically just waiting for, okay, how, what play did I get right. in the previous year? And then, so that happens around the spring. So generally, you know, around this time of the year, we're kind of, like right now, we're kind of processing through all the stuff that got played in 2018. Oh, so, okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, so it's generally, you know, one to two payments a year. Um, I should clarify, this is all from stuff that gets played in Canada. And I will say, um, we have airplay data that goes back to 1998, 1999 currently. Um, so if you got played on CBC in 1999, um, we can still collect that. Um, however, there are going to be um, closeouts on some years coming up soon, starting, uh, I think, September 2020. We're going to be closing out, like, I, I forget the range exactly, I think 1998 to 2000 or something like that, and then one year um, going on after that. Um, so we do want to let people know that, and it's best to sign up as soon as possible to make sure um, we're actually able to collect anything that might still be there in those ranges. Um, but yeah. yeah, for the time being, we do have, you know, a lot of people do ask that, um, they're like, oh, is it retroactive? Did I miss out? Like you didn't miss out, um, any airplay you've gotten on, you know, any of the yeah, tariffs in the next 20 years. Yeah. Um, it's still there. Um, we can still get it for you. So, um, we do want to let people know that, that, yeah. you know, sign up sooner than later. Yeah. Once data is collected, there are various royalty rates for different types of usage of a song. These tariffs are set by the Copyright Board of Canada and change according to negotiations involving music users such as radio stations and other businesses, and collections organizations. I spoke with Andrew from Actrorax, Matt from MROC, and Martin from ReSound about what revenue streams they collect on, international agreements for usage outside of the country, and how tariff rates are negotiated in Canada. Yeah, right now we have, and as far as uh, you know, our revenue streams, we have we collect on and distribute on rather, uh, you know, terrestrial radio, mm -hmm. which is like CBC and commercial radio stations, uh, public performance, which is like the use of recordings, you know, right. at places like retail stores and bars and that kind of thing. And then there's also digital broadcast, which includes satellite radio um, <clears throat> and pay audio, which is like the TV channels right. that play music. And then also streaming but our streaming only applies to non and semi-interactive streaming which is not spotify spotify oh. is fully interactive which means you can select yeah what you want to listen to at any time um so that's kind of a blind spot i think for performers right now and it's something right you know that we we feel should be yeah. remunerated it's it's an interesting area and and i think right now it's because you know the the labels have licenses licensing deals with kind of the the kind of major streaming platforms and they um you know the royalty artists would get paid through those agreements right. Right. but there are also a lot of other performers right. on the recording who yeah. are not royalty artists and yeah. are not getting money so it's a it's a weird area you know it's very yeah. new i i'll be honest i don't fully understand really? how all that works and, I, and i'm still kind of working my brain through that yeah. but it's you know it's a really interesting area and it's sort yeah. of this is the new frontier 
like there is no ownership, right? So everyone's just streaming. So the royalties themselves are administered by an organization organization called uh, Resound. You probably heard their name come up. Um, we consider them sort of like our umbrella organization. Um, so they, in the same way that SoCan does, they're um, administering like licenses. They're the one petitioning um, businesses and radio stations mm -hmm. to, um, you know, get their licensing up to date, and they're collecting all the revenue from the radio stations. Um, Another one's also dealing with the Copyright Board of Canada to get the tariffs established that we operate under. So we do also have agreements with, you know, the equivalent organizations around the world. Um, I think we're up to 26 countries we have agreements with now. Um, lots of countries in Europe, um, some South America. I think we have South Africa, um, Japan, South Korea. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So if you get played, you know, on the radio in England, um, it's sort of the same process. Um the timing is a little bit different than it is with Resound. Um, but yeah, you can also see money. And it's really, as far as I know, it's the same sort of process over there. Right. Um, in the UK, for example, there's just one company called PPL, and they are sort of like Resound and MROC kind of combined. They have sort of everything done in one organization. Um, so it's, yeah, it sort of differs around the world. Right. Um, you know, if you know for sure, like I'm getting played on the radio in the Netherlands a lot. You're welcome to go sign up with that organization in the Netherlands. Okay. Um, some people do do that. They'll just have one registration with each country. Um, that said, you now then you have to manage your repertoire with each one of those things. Right. There could be lang language barriers. Um, so a lot of people just say like, okay, I'll just sign up with one thing and kind of let just do my my repertoire in one place and let one organization do everything. Unless, um, do, are there like. There are countries that you don't have agreements with, though, right? Uh, yes. And then there are some, I guess I can, this is a bit more of like kind of history stuff. But I mean, yeah. we're um, so there was a there was a treaty back in the late 90s called the Rome Convention that all these countries signed um, that basically like set the parameters for that. You know, performers are a distinct entity that deserve to receive royalties um, on recordings. Um, not every country has signed it. The U.S. actually hasn't signed it. So. Wow. Um, royalties work a little bit differently down in the U.S. Um, yeah, so there's a there's an organization called Sound Exchange. Um, so they pay only feature performers, and they only pay for like digital airplay, so like satellite radio and anything on the internet. They don't pay royalties for. Um, so if you're getting played on terrestrial radio in the in the U.S. as a performer, unfortunately, there's no royalties that are available to you. Wow. Um, and yeah, they only pay um, feature performers, and then the non-feature performers are paid. Um, like Sound Exchange will send, they take 95% for the featured performers and they send the remaining 5% to um, AFM SAG-AFTRA, mm -hmm. who will then pay the non-featured performers. Um, so it is a little bit different in the US. So um, the reason we ask actually for like, you know, where the recording was made and who owns it um, is basically to check the eligibility. So if you performed on a song that was recorded entirely in the U.S. and owned by a U.S. record label, um, unfortunately, that's actually not eligible to be receive royalties um, for like CBC and commercial radio play from right. Canada because they're under like those jurisdictions. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So they're basically it has to be at least one of those categories has to be um, done by a Rome Convention country that has signed the Rome Convention, oh, okay. which again, it's you know Canada basically every country that would probably come up except the US, um, India, New Zealand. I think that those are sort of the big ones. Um, but other than that, um, most places, anything in Europe is fine. 
Um, so yeah, so there is sort of eligibility differences um, yeah. in your recordings, which is why it's important to have all the correct information. Okay. Um, that said, we do have an agreement with both Sound Exchange and AFM Sagatra down in the States. Um, so any play you are receiving under their parameters mm-hmm. um, in the U.S., we are able to collect that for you okay. um, and pay it out. So there is like a system for it in the U.S. It just sort of operates slightly differently. So, you know, the way that that uh, we collect is, is further to tariffs that are certified by the Copyright Board. And what that basically means that, you know, on behalf of, of creators, on behalf of artists and record companies, we would propose royalty rates or tariffs to the Copyright Board based on different uses of recordings. Um, you know, and, and how we propose is based on the value of music that, that they bring. So a nightclub, for instance, will propose that a nightclub pay more for the use of recorded music than, say, uh, a cafe on the corner because there's value to both, but without recorded music in a nightclub, well, there's no business. Right. So we make arguments based on, on best practice internationally. We make uh, proposals based on economic or academic evidence. <laughs> And we give that to the copyright board. The copyright board's task is to weigh that information. Um, other, other. Uh, so, say we're 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 arguing for certain radio rates. So, radio stations would pay. Well, the radio stations would then also have their evidence and their information, and, and the look at both sides and come up with something that is fair and just for for both sides. Um, that's what they're tasked to do. And those rates are effectively what we go out and collect on. Okay. Um, and we can also now just recently, we can, we can go and negotiate directly. We don't have to go to the corporate board where we always had to in the past for them to analyze or stamp or what have you. Now, just recently, um, we've made change, proposed changes and they're accepted where if there's a willing buyer, willing seller kind of arrangement where mm-hmm. if we're speaking to an association or a large group uh, or an industry at, as a whole, and they agree with what we're proposing or vice versa, that we can just both agree and move forward on that basis, which is, is really great because it doesn't kind of slow up the process and it's a kind of a, uh, a fair market uh, arrangement that we have. Right. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's the main piece of how, how the tariffs are, and then we collect on that basis. And, and obviously if we're, you know, if we're dealing with radio stations or Sirius XM or, streaming services they know what it is they have you know lots of, of legal people and uh and a lot of big teams that that are educated in this world to deal with it and it's not that complex after the arrangements have been made where the most of the work comes in is really dealing with the individual or small businesses who you know are busy running their business so they don't necessarily know about copyright or paying for the use of recorded music some do others don't yeah so there's a huge education piece there where not only do we have to educate and start from scratch, but also build a relationship of trust. And in Canada, it's still a bit of a, I wouldn't say quite a, a novelty, but where you look at other markets that are more established, and I'll point to the UK again, um, you know, it's just ingrained in, in, in their culture there that if they use it in a commercial uh, setting, recorded music that is, they know they have to pay and they, you know, they'll practically call the organization there and, and, um, and and pay their fees. Where here it's it's a bit different. So a lot. And we're, we're we're also working in a huge territory, yeah. Canada that is compared to any other one, with relatively few businesses. You know, we have say 1.8 million businesses, and we span over a bilingual and very large country. 
there, there's a cost to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So um, that, that majority of our time is spent on, on those smaller businesses, um, but that, that we really want to do a good job and build a strong relationship with so that they understand what they're paying and why they're paying. Right. Yeah, totally. And when you're negotiating rates, is that like, are you working with the organizations on the composition side on the mechanical rights side, like CMRA or SOCAN? Like, is that like an annual meeting that happens or? No, no, no. Good question. Uh, because we all administer or manage different rights and for different rights mm-hmm. holders, um, it is separate. So we'll okay. talk where it makes where, where it makes sense and, and give each other heads up or, hey, what are you thinking on this front and, and share information where we can, um, where it's helpful because we want to, to do as well as we can collectively and kind of be in line with each other. Uh, right. Otherwise, it really is on our own. It's more about <clears throat> looking at the rest of the world and what uh, neighboring rights is what we, we do. Um, so what is neighboring rights? Um, what's happening on that front worldwide and what are the trends and what is working well and not. So that's what we look at more than what's happening on the mechanical or reproduction or composer side. Um, because again, it's just, it's different rights with kind of different inherent uh, issues around them. The music industry is always evolving. And one great example of this can be seen in a recent shift in the licensing process in Canada. Last year, ReSound started a joint venture with SOCAN called Intandem, which aims to simplify the licensing process to collect royalties for certain revenue streams on both the composition side and the master side all at once. I spoke with Martin from ReSound about this, and he explained in more depth what Intandem is and why it was formed. Um, so this is an example of where the composers and um, recording artists and labels work together. So. I mentioned before that, you know, very large country, relatively few businesses. So Canada Resound have been doing their own thing for uh, a long time. And uh, and then Resound's much newer. We started in, in 97 and uh, our outreach to small businesses started in 2007, really. So it started small, but, but, but you know, every, the, the, the country was our oyster. So we could, we were going everywhere and everything was new. So a lot of new business, a lot of new, uh, uh, licensees coming on board so we didn't at that time uh, have the need to combine efforts with with SoCan. SoCan was growing too but then came a maturation point where we're both you know spending more time and resources um, finding businesses and the businesses mm-hmm. were increasingly small because all the bigger or mid-sized players were signed up so we're both chasing the same very small business and the return on investment really wasn't wasn't necessarily there so you know, this idea of, of this joint venture was born out of um, Resound and SoCan always to seek uh, to improve, innovate, but also kind of follow the international best practices. And, and this is one of them, are, are what we've created. Um, and also users and government were kind of asking for it, saying, well, if a small business or a mid-sized business doesn't really understand this and they're getting calls um, from Resound, then from SoCan to pay this group and not that group. And again, it's not, this is not what they do, these small businesses. So it's, it's a bit onerous on them. Um, so I think both, you know, MPs and, and government at large and, and smaller users and associations were asking for this. So this is something we saw as a great opportunity, you know, improve, improve customer service basically through, through simplicity. One invoice, you pay once, you're, you're all covered. And you increase efficiency internally. And also, we maximize the, the revenues that we, we provide for rights holders. So, in tandem, uh, makes it easier for businesses to get their licenses and continue to use music legal and illegally and ethically. It also provides them with a 
what we're calling kind of a, a one-stop shop for both fees that are public performance fees on the free sound side for artists and labels mm. and on the SOCAN side for composers and authors and publishers. So two different sets of rights holders uh, through one company now are covered for public performance. So this doesn't cover, for instance, uh, reproduction rights. It doesn't cover that, but it really covers mm -hmm. everything that is related to public performance. So it, it, for businesses, it's just one stop instead of two and less confusion. Right. And this was launched in 2019, July 2019. So we're, we're not quite at a year yet, but we've gone through the first six months. And the response has been has been really good uh, here domestically and internationally. It's being looked at, I, I, I've said a couple of times, best practices, but it's being looked at one of the uh, the, the stronger uh, joint ventures that has happened worldwide. As an artist or performer, earning a living in the music industry can be challenging. And while there's room for improvement in royalty rates for performers on recordings, there are still many revenue streams available to recording artists. And as the industry evolves, there may be more. Collections organizations like MROC, ActuRax, Connect Music Licensing, and ReSound are set up for the sole purpose of helping you earn your full share from your master rights. So it's crucial that you register with them as soon as possible. To close, here are some final thoughts and advice for artists from Andrew from ActuRax and Martin from ReSound. Um, you know, there's this, this saying that somebody told me once that I really like. And I, I've kind of, I've tried to adapt it. <laughs> so the saying that they mentioned was uh, luck gets you there and skill keeps you there, yeah. which I really like. Um, but the, the, the way that I like to adapt it is like a lot of the skill now is kind of being savvy about the industry, right? So I feel like if, if you're waiting for luck, which is that opportunity where someone will hear you and will just kind of change your career, I think you'll get more opportunities for luck with better skill. And your yeah. skill can be enhanced by education and by what you know about the industry. So I find that, you know, it's helpful for to be, to always be in touch with not-for-profits. I think people underuse them. Like yeah. me, for example, if anyone wants to contact me and ask me just basic questions, they can do it anytime. You know, there are other people at ActuRacks that work in membership and the same thing. And, you know, I think most other not-for-profits in the Canadian music industry would say the same. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I'm sure SoCan would be like, yeah, call us, we'll give you information, or yeah. like Factor or whoever. And I think it's just an underused tool. Like mm -hmm. people forget that these places exist. And to bring it back to my first statement, it's like the more information you have, the better, the more likely you are to have a lucky experience that gets you, you know, into a place where your skill can take over. Yeah. Um. You know, I'd say, I, yeah, my advice would be not to get overwhelmed because it, it can be overwhelming. And I'm still learning things about uh, our side of the business every day. Um, there are a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of information out there. Um, but if you take, you know, uh, it's step by step and want to put in the time and learn, I think uh, it's going to, you know, pay dividends in the future. Yeah. But you know, short of doing your research and putting your time in and asking your peers or asking other people or picking up the phone and calling. We, we only exist to, to pay out, you know, Resound and, and the other organizations we're here to serve. So pick up the phone and, and use us. Um, we want to be kind of um, a good tool for, for artists and, uh, and labels, indie labels or, or larger labels. Um, and the other piece I'd say really with relation to, you know, the collections pieces, as you said before, or just kind of um, this part of the business is, is, as I said from the top, sign up. Just mm -hmm. make sure you sign up and you have 
you have the ability to receive royalties if, if there are some waiting for you and you never know when that might be totally so um yeah and um no i think that those are the kind of the key issues i think the key things that are important to to uh to look at and, and other things like you know the add up i think subscribing to newsletters there's you know the fyi news or resound is a new newsletter that's informative has industry gigs has industry information um you know kind of subscribing to those and, and perusing them uh whenever you may have a chance i think it's a good source of information it may lead you down a path that you otherwise would not have found or known about um and then also i think industry events so we have a team that goes out and um so do all our, our member organizations go out to panels and schools and different events so you know i know that like cmw is great for checking out gigs and new bands and you know that kind of thing um but there are great panels and, and great um great it's a great time and space to meet new people and learn about what's going on in the industry at large so i, I take advantage of those opportunities as well Thank you so much to Matt Craig from MROC, Andrew Karras from Actorax, and Martin Gagne from ReSound for their contributions to this episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Offkey. I've linked to the show notes for this episode in the description, so check those out for a summary of key points, links, and resources on the topics we discussed during this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you would like me to cover, please email me at offkey at membrane.net or send me a message at either Membrane Labs or Talia SW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright, with writing and research assistance from Dino Cialotti. Thank you to Torben Witterman for creating the music used in our intro, outro, and transitions. Offkey is a member of Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them. <laughs>